Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Stephen L. Moore, author of the new book, Patton's Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patton's Rise to Glory. Stephen L. Moore, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, in your book, Patton's Payback, you write about the Battle of El Guitar. Why did you decide to write about this battle specifically, and what was the significance of the battle to both the fight in North Africa and to Patton's career? Well, ironically, this was one that my editor at uh, Dutton, Brent Howard, suggested was kind of long overdue to go back and really look at Patton and how he came into command. Because he's well-known and controversial, revered, hated all at the same time. But North Africa is where Patton really came into power. And he did so because of the inept leadership of his predecessor. And we can talk more on that if you want. But that was uh, one of the, I guess, stirring points to get into this was to really examine how Patton came into power, what he did differently, and how he was victorious. Because for the Americans, this was a learning ground in North Africa, you know, on the ground, a major campaign. We'd done some island campaigns in the Pacific, but this was the first big push with infantry, armor, artillery, you know, the whole gamut of two corps from the army. Uh, the Battle of El Guitar went on for a number of weeks. You know, the key engagements kicked off in mid-March, but it strung out into early April. And even by the time uh, the campaign was concluded, Hatton had already been removed to prepare for the next invasion in Sicily. But it was our first major victory there, and it set the stage and prepared the American troops for what they would face, the Normandy invasions. So it was a great. Well, if, if someone isn't that familiar with General Patton beyond the headlines, can you give us a brief um, explanation of Patton's career um, before Eisenhower picked him to lead in North Africa? Yeah, he was a complex man and leader, you know, irreverent, impulsive, inspiring, often all at the same time. Uh, going back to his early days, he had represented the U.S. Army in the 1912 Olympic Games. He was the military's first master sword instructor. He'd even pursued uh, Mexican leader Pancho Villa through much of Mexico in 1916. Uh, Patton was wounded and decorated with the Distinguished Service Cross for his valor in World War One. And from his early days as a commander, he always emphasized his preference for offensive movement, saying that human lives were wasted when you slow anything down. You know, he had a fiery dis determination to speak the truth, and he often had this propensity to feud with others in his service and with other countries. But he was ambitious. He, he wanted to rise and, and achieve higher ranks, and he did so but often at the cost of anything that got in his way of getting there. Uh, and, of course, Eisenhower did ultimately put him in command in North Africa. But he had a, a pretty solid background you know, going into that, particularly that as being a, a armored commander, a tank commander prior to World War II. And uh, you mentioned earlier his predecessor in North in North Africa. What were the mistakes? First of all, who was his predecessor, predecessor and what were the mistakes that that predecessor made in the um, initial battle with, um, with Rommel? Yeah, uh, Major General Lloyd Fredendahl, he was the head of the two corps, and he commanded from afar, if you will. He had a bomb-proof shelter near Tabessa in Algeria, which at that time was almost 100 miles from the frontline action. And the GIs kind of despisingly referred to that as his bunker is Lloyd's very last resort, or the Shangri-La, a million miles from nowhere. <laughs> so the, the leader, if you will, was issuing what were often confusing uh, commands to his men that they all often had to almost decipher what exactly Fredendahl was trying to tell them. And ultimately, with some of the battles in February of 1943, Kasserin Pass and some of the other encounters with Rommel and uh, his Africa Corps. Uh, the Americans did not do well. He had them badly divided, splintered into different factions so that they did not fight cohesively. And we suffered a lot of losses in terms of men, uh, vehicles, and everything else to the point that they lost faith in Fred and Dahl to lead them effectively. 
Well, morale and charisma is sometimes a difficult thing to define or explain. But I'm curious, what did Patton do exactly to get the U.S. Army troops fired up to fight the Germans again after the defeat that you just mentioned or, or the um, loss of life and the mistakes that they were making? What, what did Patton do when he came in? He was a leader that uh, believed in, you know, seeing what was going going on out there and in being seen. So when he came to the two corps headquarters on March 6th to 43, he worked quickly to let them know that there was a new power in place. Uh, his first morning as he's taking the reins over from Fredendall, he finds that a lot of the senior brass are rolling in about nine o'clock to have their breakfast when he's in there at 7 a.m. ready to go. So he immediately orders the mess hall shut down at 7.30 from that day forward. And he basically said, by God, everybody's going to be on time starting tomorrow. So he, st he started with little things, uh, some of it being dress code, uh, officers wearing neckties, men wearing leggings with their uniforms on the, the lower part of their legs, uh, steel helmets instead of the soft nip uh, skull caps out in the field. Now, of course, this is the desert, and that's not a popular thing to do. But he would inspect the troops and hand out fines or even toss people, you know, in the brig overnight if they failed to follow his directions. And I mentioned a number of encounters with key men. And quickly, this man means business, and, and when he says it, you better do it. Well, uh, you had mentioned about um, uh, Patton's, you know, knowledge as a tank commander. And I'm curious, were there specific tactics or strategies that Patton used in tank warfare that was different from other generals? Or was it purely a force of personality, as you mentioned, and, and kind of um, coming in and reading people the riot act and making them show up on time, et cetera? W were there specific tactics in the field that, that Patton did differently? Yeah, pre-war, Patton and one of his contemporaries, Eisenhower, both wrote papers for the Army journals uh, looking at new strategies of how to use armored forces more effectively. They didn't see them as a means to haul troops to the front line, but something that needed to be actively uh, deployed along with the other forces they had. And he displayed this in the war games in America leading up to World War II, uh, one, of it, one of which was uh, in the southern states, largely through Louisiana, to where if he had bridges taken out and he couldn't use those, he took his men due south and found a crossing and drove through Texas, filling up his tanks at gas stations along the way as he needed to to, <laughs> to kind of get the jump on his opponents, if you will. But uh, he believed in engaging the enemy on the front lines there, but also sweeping in back from behind to hit him from both sides, to kick him from the rear, as he would say, a little bit slightly different terms. Sure. Well, I, I know you're a historian, so you're obviously examining the historical record, but I wonder if you've ever thought about the question, what if the U.S. had lost in North Africa? How would that defeat have impacted the overall war? Well, it definitely would have set us back and it would have you know, changed the mindset going into some of the other countries, you know, leading up to the European invasion. And, you know, of course, had our setbacks early on and some of the, the battles I mentioned in the first part of the book, but learning as we did in El Guitar and, and the drive across Tunisia, that helped set the stage. Uh, you know, not that things went smoothly at Normandy. That was quite bloody landing, but we were better prepared for what was at hand. You know, the Germans, on the other hand, had been fighting for quite a while in North Africa against the Brits and everybody. But by the time March, April into early May rolls around in 43, they are strung out. Their supply lines are thin. Fuel, ammunition, everything is getting to be a burden. So it, it's a lot to learn to support a massive, you know, cross-continental campaign campaign like that. So it helped us out quite a bit with what we learned there. I think. Interesting. I'm curious, uh, given current events, did it surprise you at all to see these like uh, photos in the last several months of these? Um, uh, tank columns that if you can believe some of the, the reporting that they ran out of gas and that the logistics and supplies weren't up to, to snuff in, in um, Ukraine. Yeah. Well, the, the country is massive as Russia. It's a little bit surprising that they're that ill prepared, but 
I think part of that's the realities of war. I mean, as you push forward, you've got to have a pretty sizable force to keep up with food, supplies, fuel, and everything else. And when you've got some solid ground fighting going on, it, it's not as easy as one might think. So they definitely ran into some snags. And I guess you've seen some of the videos of some of the tanks being blasted by well-positioned artillery. So it's, it's odd seeing that in today's modern world tank warfare on the ground, you know? <laughs> I know. I, 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 you know, I'm certainly, I, I don't have um, experience in the military, but I've certainly read a lot and it, you know, it's just been said from almost ancient times that logistics wins wars. Um, it just surprises me. Absolutely. I mean, it, a matter of preparation and uh, with any country, there's things that don't go smooth, but it's a matter of how you improvise and overcome, as they say. Sure. And whether it's, you know, obtaining fuel from destroyed enemy vehicles or whatever it takes, but, you know, to keep that move going. And oftentimes the, the you know, weeks of preparation mean a lot when you get into the heat of combat. Right. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, how did Patton's experiences in North Africa impact his tactics and performance later in the war? As I mentioned, he was uh, pulled from the campaign yeah, in April as, as things are you know, starting to go our way that way and heading in the right direction. And I think it gave him good, solid experience with the troops, the troops being familiar with him so that he did go on to lead effectively in the uh, Sicily landings at Operation Husky. Uh, it was just a good proving ground for him, I would say. Sure. Well, were there things about Patton in the North Africa campaign that you didn't know about that you discovered while researching the book that may have surprised you? Well, like a lot of people, I was, uh, you know, a little bit familiar with Patton. seen the famous movie with George C. Scott, of course, and, I read a little bit, but it was not a subject that I deeply uh, dug into to study. I, I tend to get into whatever my subject matter is and, and just devour everything I can on that. So with Patton, there, there was a lot to learn. I, I went back and uh, particularly got into his diaries that he kept, uh, which are available through the archives, and read what was in his mind, what he was thinking. You know, part of the payback element was his son-in-law, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Waters, he was captured in February by the Germans, where he had been second in command of the 1st Armored Division. And Patton at first, you know, fears that he's dead, and it takes him a while to realize that he is a prisoner of war. So he's got, you know, the payback of the Americans looking pretty bad in some of the early conflicts, a personal vendetta with his son-in-law captured, and then along the way, the loss of one of his favorite uh, aides-de-camp, who was killed in action. So learning what was in his mind, what he was thinking, you know, even asking God to be with him in the battle ahead, this coming from a man that's so profane and outrageous that he even has those kind of thoughts, that, that was a little surprising to me. So uh, definitely learned along the way, as I do with any subject I tackle like this. Sure. Well, are you working on a new book now? I ended up uh, kind of doing a follow-up, if you will, uh, getting into the armor realm. Uh, one of our most famous tank aces, a guy named Lafayette Cool. His nickname was uh, War Daddy. And if you watched the Fury movie with Brad Pitt a few years back, his nickname was War Daddy. So that was uh, borrowed from Sergeant Cool. He uh, had more than five, at least six uh, German tank kills on the front lines. 
as well as destroying hundreds of military vehicles of all types, capturing and killing a number of personnel. So he was one of the most celebrated U.S. tankers in the war prior to his uh, being badly wounded in Germany. So I dug in and learned everything I could about War Daddy, and that book will be coming up later on this fall. That's great. I'm curious, how did you get started writing nonfiction historical books? Well, my first book was in the 90s. Uh, ironically, one of the professors at Stephen F. Austin, where I went to college, he was a World War II veteran that served in a torpedo bomber squadron. And I was always fascinated with carrier history in the, in the Pacific War. And he and the guys had wanted for quite a while to do a book on their squadron, but they really had no idea how to put it together. And talking with them, I said, hey, I'd be happy to jump in and help you. And they had done quite a lot of legwork. They had ample newsletters with lots of personal stories. Uh, one of the co-authors, Bill Shineman, had done a lot of oral history interviews for one of the museums. So we had those on hand. And I was able to reach out to the squadron photography officer and obtain all of his images taken in battle during all the actions. So it came together uh, pretty well, or a coffee table kind of book. But uh, I guess I always had a penchant for history, maybe not so much in my school years, but afterwards, once I read a few authors, it really kind of impressed on me how the firsthand stories, you know, really bring it to life for me. Mm -hmm. You know, strategies and tactics, admittedly, sometimes can bog down the reader, can get kind of boring at times. But when you're in the in the, the front line trenches or up in the cockpit with one of these guys thinking what they're thinking, experiencing what's going on. To me, that takes on a whole new light. And that kind of piqued my interest in nonfiction being, as I say, sometimes even better than fiction. That's great. Well, what advice would you offer for someone who would like to write a nonfiction history book about a specific historical event or place or person? Well, if it's the case of World War II, I would say act quickly. Uh, the, <laughs> obviously, the time is now to do that. Fortunately, over the past 10, 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of work by the National World War II Museum, the uh, Nimitz Museum in Fredericksburg, National Archives, to sit down and document oral histories and video histories with the men and women that served. For those that are still living, I, you, know, you have to catch it quickly because the ones I've talked to in the past year or two, they're somewhere between 97 and 102 years of age. And, you know, quite frankly, they're just not going to be with us much longer. And you've got to hope to find those veterans that still have their faculties together enough to remember a lot of those fine details. So interview those you can with some more recent conflicts such as Korea or Vietnam. You've still got people around in uh, greater numbers, but, it's important to catch them while you can. You know, the, the battle reports and the official histories, that's there in the archives to dig out. But the personal stories, the, there's a shelf life on how long these, these fellows are going to be around to talk to. Sure. <laughs> well, what other history or World War II books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I just got through reading one. Uh, it was post-World War II, uh, James Hornfisher. And this is a, a book on the Cold War, starting at the end of the world. Communists build up, the, the nuclear arms race. Uh, that was quite interesting. But I, like I said, I tend to read what I'm uh, studying at the time. I've got a, another submarine book I'm working on. Just a, a gentleman I happened to meet by chance oh, about nine months ago. And I knew kind of what he'd done and what submarine he served on. And he was kind of shocked. I knew as much as I did. And we've been having a lot of fun going back and forth, doing interviews. So doing some reading on the silent service and brushing up my uh, my history there a little bit. And it, like I said, it just tends to be a little bit of whatever I'm studying or thinking about studying for my next topic. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new book, Patton's Payback? Well, of course, it's available through all the major sellers like Barnes & Double and Amazon, but I have a personal website, stephenlmore.com, spelled P-H-E-N instead of B-E-N. And I've got the covers of the books and just some reviews and brief info on each one of them going back to the earliest one. So there's a little background on me and the rest 
uh, including patents payback, is pretty easily accessible out there in the marketplace right now. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Stephen L. Moore, author of the new book, Patents Payback, The Battle of El Guitar and General Patents Rise to Glory. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And Stephen, thanks for doing this interview. I appreciate it. Best of luck with all your future interviews. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Chapter 1. Purple Heart Tanker The ten-ton tank destroyers churned slowly forward, engines whining. Four dozen sets of clanking armored tracks grinding the desert sand into clouds of smoky white powder. Technician fifth grade Tom Morrison stood in the open-topped rear compartment, one hand clutching the armored shield that surrounded his half-track's main gun. His body stiff from hours of being jostled about, he wiped the dust from his eyeglasses and peered ahead. His armored force was pushing deeper into central Tunisia, a world little changed in thousands of years. Though embroiled now in the Second World War, over the millennia, the land had been ruled at various periods by Romans, Vandals, and the Byzantines, before being conquered by the Arabs in the 7th century. In 1881, Tunisia had been invaded by France, and had since endured six decades of French control that left little room for nationalist progression. The remote North African village before Morrison was little more than sand, rocks, and ruins. The West Latia Valley, nestled in an eroded plateau between the rugged eastern and western dorsal, extensions of the Atlas Mountains, still sported crumbling remains of structures that dated to Roman times. Farms were scarce in this region, leaving local Arabs to feed their animals on cultivated cactus patches, bunch grass, and scrub growth that dared to survive in the pebbly foothills. Spatterings of green palm and olive groves added color to the desert hills, near the village of Wesletia, sustained by irrigation from wells hacked through the rocky desert terrain over the centuries. Inside the 15-foot-high ancient rock wall that surrounded Wesletia were hundreds of freedom fighters dressed in white kepi hats with blue sashes over white linen trousers and colorful epaulets topping their blue greatcoats. The desert settlement was being used as a forward operating post for members of the French Foreign Legion, infantrymen from a multitude of countries and cultures whose service had been accepted. To Morrison, they were just fugitives. Many had joined the Foreign Legion to escape punishment for infractions committed in their homelands. While most spoke heavy dialects and incomprehensible languages, one legionnaire had admitted to Morrison in English that he originally hailed from Chicago, where he was sought by both the police and Illinois crime gangs. He had also delivered a sobering warning. As many as 47 German panzer tanks were lying in concealment in the desert just miles ahead. To the German and Italian soldiers concentrated throughout the region, Tunisia was worth fighting for. Morrison, possessing little knowledge of the military big picture, could scarcely imagine why American lives were worth losing over these arid hills punctuating the Sahara Desert. But the brain trust of the Axis forces understood that air bases here could put Allied bombers within reach of Italy and portions of Germany. It could also double as a staging area for future Allied offensives into Sicily, the Italian peninsula, and southern France. Adolf Hitler, the Nazi dictator of Germany, had declared North Africa to be the enemy's approach to Europe, a land that must be held at all costs. Although Morrison's unit had already seen action in North Africa, he was not apprehensive this day. Over the past several weeks, his tank destroyer unit had been rushed to different areas in Tunisia to counteract enemy tank activity, only to find nothing there. Today it was January 19, 1943, and Morrison was celebrating his 25th birthday, thousands of miles from his home in Ohio. The mechanized fighting vehicle in which he served had come a long way since Little Willie. Britain had developed the first armored land vehicle in 1915, nicknamed Little Willie, after an uncomplimentary moniker for the German crown prince, Wilhelm. Fitted with imported American tracks, Little Willie saw service only for driver training. By early 1916, a superior replacement known variously as Big Willie, or Mother, had entered testing. Mother resulted in the first production order for 100 armored vehicles by Britain, whose first units began seeing action in September 1916. 
Production workers, under orders to keep their project secret, shipped the first vehicles in crates labeled tank, since their odd shapes resembled water tanks that could be used for troops in the field. The name tank stuck with the new military invention. The idea of an armored battle car was almost as old as recorded history. The ancient concept had been to provide infantrymen with mobile protection and firepower. In 1482, artist and inventor Leonardo da Vinci drew concepts of a war car, a land weapon combining armor, mobility, and firepower that was operated by four men turning large cranks to power its wheels. Leonardo's design was not deemed practical, and centuries would pass before a self-propelled armored vehicle would come into being. Horse-drawn machine guns and artillery pieces were vulnerable to enemy fire in combat. In 1769, French military engineer Nicolas-Joseph Cugnot built three-wheeled steam-powered vehicles for trials by the French artillery, but little progress was made. In 1855, Britain patented a steam traction engine based on Cugnot's design, but it was never mass-produced. Evolution of the modern tank progressed in the early 20th century with the advent of the internal combustion engine and caterpillar tracks. Science fiction writers played a part in influencing design. In the December 1903 Strand magazine, H.G. Wells wrote an influential short story called The Land Ironclads, which described armored fighting vehicles carrying soldiers who fired semi-automatic weapons from reinforced ports. Britain's development of Little Willie and Mother was underway a little more than a decade after Wells's fictional inspiration. By the concluding years of World War I, British, French, and German tanks had become a vital means of warfare. America's early taste of tank combat in 1918 came via French-obtained Renault FT light tanks, characterized by poor mechanical reliability and a dreadfully slow speed of 5.5 miles per hour. Dwight Eisenhower was the officer in charge of training tank crews stateside, and a young officer named George S. Patton commanded the U.S. Armored Forces in World War I. The M-1917 six-ton tank was licensed for manufacture by the United States, and it remained the key armored vehicle of the American military until the early 1930s, when efforts commenced to develop a new generation of tanks. But aside from experimental types, the U.S. Army procured only 321 light tanks from 1930 to 1939, until new emphasis was focused on development due to the rise of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. The Europeans surged forward with technological advances during the arms race of the late 1930s, and by the time the U.S. Army produced its M2 medium tank, in the summer of 1939, it was already considered obsolete. Only 112 M2 tanks were produced that year, as its primary armament, a 37mm gun, was vastly inferior to the 75mm 3-inch turret gun of the newest German Panzer IV tanks. In July 1940, design commenced on a replacement, the M3 medium tank, produced in America with a 75mm gun for use by the U.S. Army and its British allies. M3 tanks employing U.S. pattern turrets were called the Lee, after Confederate General Robert E. Lee, while variants using modified British turrets were dubbed Grant, after Union General Ulysses S. Grant. British troops employed both Grant and Lee variations of the M3 medium tank in North Africa during 1942. But by the time the U.S. 1st Armored Division deployed to North Africa, it was largely using a new medium tank. In February of that year, production commenced on the M4, which was quickly named the Sherman by the British in reference to another American Civil War general, William Tecumseh Sherman. The British 8th Army drove the 1st Sherman tanks into battle in late October 1942 at the Second Battle of El Alamein where they successfully engaged German Panzer III and IV tanks at 2,000 yards. As the North Africa campaign entered early 1943, the U.S. Army was steadily upgrading its M3 Lee tank battalions with the superior M4 Shermans. In addition to developing traditional fighting tanks, the U.S. Army's big thinkers advocated divisional anti-tank battalions to challenge enemy armored divisions. 
Such units would consist of mechanized gun vehicles that were more mobile and capable of handling additional reconnaissance duties. War games held in Louisiana, North Carolina, and South Carolina in 1941 had proven the value of self-propelled anti-tank guns against traditional armored regiments, thus paving the way for additional tank-destroyer battalions. Tom Morrison was attached to the 601st Tank Destroyer Battalion, a detachment of the 1st Infantry Division, which had been officially activated by the U.S. War Department on December 15, 1941. More than half of the original members of this anti-tank battalion were pulled from the ranks of the so-called Big Red One, the Army's famous 1st Infantry Division. Its original commander was 46-year-old battle-wise veteran, Major Herschel David Baker, who was raised on military posts as the son of an Army surgeon. At the commencement of World War I, Baker enlisted as a private in the cavalry, and later won a commission as a second lieutenant in an officer's training school in France. During the Mousargon Offensive of September-November 1918, he was injured during a gas attack, and later received the Purple Heart. Baker was commissioned into the regular army in 1920, serving in various roles prior to the outbreak of World War II. An accomplished horseman and polo player, he was a true showman loud and brash around his officers, but unafraid to wade into a poker game or host a beer party for his battalion. In the 601st's unofficial history, Baker was described as a 220-pound, roly-poly, cherubic-looking, foghorn-voiced ball of fire. In August 1942, Baker, now a lieutenant colonel, and the 601st had set sail from New York Harbor on board the 80,000-ton troop ship RMS Queen Mary for deployment to England to prepare for combat against the Axis forces in North Africa. The men and their machines were debarked in Africa in November, then moved to Algeria before commencing an 800-mile trek to Tunisia during December to help make a difference in the desert war against German and Italian forces. Morrison's armored anti-tank vehicle was named the M3 Gun Motor Carriage and built on a rear half-track chassis with regular wheels in the front for steering, thus providing the handling of a truck with the capabilities of a tank. Each M3 sported one-quarter inch of face-hardened plate, just enough to ward off small-arms fire to protect its five-man crew. The half-track's main weapon, a 75-millimeter gun, was protected by five-eighth-inch thick steel, rated to stop 30-caliber rounds at 250 yards. The vehicle had only one foot of ground clearance, but it could do 45 miles per hour on level terrain, making it faster than even the lightest tanks. The M3 half-track measured just over 20 feet in length and weighed nine tons. Its front end resembled that of an army truck, with two front wheels, while the two rear tracks were made of molded rubber over steel cabling with metal guides. The M3's 60-gallon tank allowed it to travel 150 miles before refueling. The M3 included a mounted 50 caliber M2 Browning machine gun, while newer M3A1 variants added 30 caliber machine guns mounted along the sides of the rear passenger compartment. Being largely open air, the half-track offered its crew little protection from the desert heat, blowing sand, and the occasional thunderstorm. Morrison hated riding in the back of his, the occupants were largely unprotected from bursting artillery shells, and driving an M3 came with its own challenges. Staff Sergeant Bill Harper, a 23-year-old East Texas native assigned to C Company of the 601st, found few good points to like about it. Drivers making turns too quickly were subject to throwing a track, and the gun motor carriages had very thin armor. The men ended up calling them Purple Heart Boxes, a grim reference to the U.S. Army decoration for combat wounds. Tank crews, whether manning full Sherman tanks or the lighter tank-destroyer variations, like Morrison's crew, were eternally challenged in the Tunisian desert. Daily maintenance was constant, cleaning oil, fuel, and air filters, checking and adjusting track tensions to prevent throwing a track in combat, frequent cleaning of guns, ammunition, and optical sights to remove dust and sand, and hand-fueling of each tank from five-gallon jerry cans. 
Life inside the tanks was even more demanding. The crews operated in sweltering, confined quarters and were jolted about while on the move, with minimal padding and ample protruding instruments to create bruises and black eyes. When the afternoon desert heat exceeded 110 degrees, the armored vehicle's interior, when completely buttoned down, could easily reach temperatures 20 degrees higher. Added to the energy-draining heat was a tortuous blasting of sand that invaded a man's eyes, mouth, and uniform. Combat service in North Africa for a Purple Heart box tanker left little to be envied. Morrison had spent the previous year rarely in the know. Born in the village of Brewster, Ohio, Thomas Elwood Morrison was known simply as Tom to his military comrades, though his siblings called him Elwood. He was finally accepted into military service in May 1942, although he had been rejected the year before due to poor teeth. He lost two teeth while working as a rail yard pipefitter following high school. Morrison had started his Army career in radio training at Fort Bragg, but by the time he shipped out overseas in late 1942, he was attached to the 1st Infantry Division. His 601st Tank Destroyer Battalion destroyers were marked with a yellow square emblazoned with the black letter Y. Morrison would learn that German soldiers nicknamed the American battalion the Black Y Boys because of their prominent identification mark. The 601st had an authorized strength of 38 officers and 860 enlisted men organized into a headquarters company, a reconnaissance company, three gun companies, and a 16-man medical detachment. Each of the three gun companies had five armored cars, 18 Jeeps, eight M3s, and four newer model lighter M6 half-tracks. Each company was split into four platoons, with Morrison's crew officially part of A Company, 1st Platoon. His time in the village of West Latia was brief. Early the next morning, January 20th, his platoon fell in with a procession of armored vehicles along the hard-packed road. Morrison's half-track driver, Sergeant Dick Hammond, drove them forward to the town some five miles before taking up position on high ground at the mouth of the wide valley below. The 601st's second heavy platoon, four heavy destroyers and four 37-millimeter half-track light destroyers, three quarter-ton trucks mounted with 37-millimeters, were stationed on lower ground, near Morrison's first platoon along the road that ran through the valley. Morrison's platoon was an armored portion of the U.S. Army's Combat Command B, CCB, of the 1st Armored Division. The CCB had been sent forward to assist French troops in the West Latia Valley area in central Tunisia. They faced the German 5th Panzer Army, under General Hans-Jürgen von Arnim, who intended to prevent the Allies from advancing through the mountain passes of the eastern dorsals toward the Tunisian coast. The American forces, some 3,400 men and four dozen armored vehicles, had been pushed forward to greet von Arnim's panzers. The first platoon used the last hour before daybreak on January 20th to partially camouflage its tank destroyers from the daylight threat of attacks by German aircraft. Morrison dug a deep foxhole from which he had a commanding view of the desert valley once the sunlight began flooding the terrain. Then he took time to marvel at the beautiful green valley, rich with olive groves, large haystacks, and a sprinkling of little Arab houses. A more peaceful scene one could not ask for, he recalled. Morrison's crew passed the day snoozing near their M3, reading books and playing cards until dusk. He did not see any officers during the day. They were occupied at an observation post set up in between the two platoon's gun positions. His platoon had a new commander, 25-year-old First Lieutenant Lawrence Elliot Lowry Marcus, who had stepped into the position after the platoon's previous leader, Captain Robert Steele, was killed by a sniper on Christmas Eve while the unit was assisting French forces near Pichon. Marcus was a Harvard graduate who hailed from Dallas, Texas, where his Jewish family's retail fashion business, Neiman Marcus, continued to thrive even during wartime. Marcus concerned himself with keeping tabs on the reported panzers, and he sent recon company jeeps and command tracks up and down the road near West Latia during the afternoon. The advance American force was set to counter elements of the 5th Panzer Army, 
under the direction of Wiley Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, popularly known in the press as the Desert Fox. The valley remained quiet until dusk began to settle, when Morrison heard a nervous call from a 601st sentry. Enemy tank approaching. Sergeant Hammond's half-track crew dropped their books and stood to see a German tank rumbling slowly toward them, some 300 yards away. Morrison stared in disbelief. Suddenly, the German tank erupted with a fiery blast and sent around, screaming toward the American position. The shot hid nothing, but the battle was on. Everyone scrambled into their machines, and all the gunners in the first heavy platoon opened fire. At the relatively close range, some of their shots began hitting the German tank, but their 37-millimeter rounds only bounced off the heavy armor of the enemy tank. The German commander began backing his vehicle down the road and fired off a flare. Morrison was shocked to see other flares erupt from both sides of the road. In an instant, the large haystacks below suddenly became enemy tanks that had been brilliantly disguised throughout the day. Every tree in the valley turned into a tank as Morrison watched. German shells screened by, followed by the sight of a distant blue flash a split second later. To him, all of the German tanker fire appeared to be concentrated on his first platoon's hilltop position. The panzers began maneuvering around the left flank of the hill, but in the fading light, Morrison and his crew struggled to find a target. The entire hillside was bursting with explosions, and the valley below was lit up like a bunch of blue fireflies. Noting the German tanks coming around on his left flank, Master Sergeant Cyrus Cobb yelled at his half-track commanders to pull back. The first heavy platoon fell back approximately one mile and paused only long enough to once again come under heavy fire from German tankers. Cobb then ordered his tanks to fall back even farther to a command post that had been established about a mile away. Bill Harper of the 601st was among the M3 crews forced to fall back as the infantry and tanks fired. It was getting pretty rough. I found out real quick they were shooting real bullets, said Harper. They had us outnumbered and outgunned. The Germans were good soldiers. We just didn't have any experience. Lieutenant Lowry Marcus could see German tanks advancing over the hill, pausing occasionally to open fire. Their shells exploded all around the 601st's position. Marcus realized the 10th Panzer Division his men were facing was aggressive, and determined, and possessed superior numbers. Second in command of his platoon, Marcus passed orders for his outmanned tank destroyers to fall back. In his mind, he rationalized the call. Is it better to stand still and pop off a few rounds and get hit yourself and be out of the picture? Or is it better to retreat and come back and fight another day? As the first heavy platoon was falling back about a quarter mile down the road, other American units were left exposed in the sudden German assault. The second heavy platoon was caught completely off guard. Among the 601st observation postmen left on foot in this area was Lieutenant Wilcher Conway Bill Stotts, Jr., a former student at the University of Arkansas, who had joined the U.S. Army shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. With Stotts was Sergeant Daniel Doney, a 25-year-old from Lowell, Massachusetts. In the rush to escape the oncoming Germans, a handful of men manning machine guns were left behind, including Stotts and Doney. Another man at the 601st Command Post who was cut off in the action was Marcus, who found that the advancing German tanks were supported by a strong infantry detachment. The tank destroyer men operating outside of their battalion's half-tracks were in danger of being overrun by the Panzergrenadiers before the American guns could establish a proper defensive. Marcus had crawled 150 yards under machine gun fire to reorganize his troops and direct 75-millimeter gunfire back at the Germans. Once the fight became so intense that his 601st battery was forced to fall back, Marcus was caught in an unenviable position, seeking cover between the flying shells of both the Germans and the Americans. His capture seemed likely, so Marcus ripped out sections from his field notebook that contained confidential data and with some difficulty ate the pages.
Then he used his mess spoon to dig out a shallow foxhole in a hillside to ride out the night. Before dawn, dozens of Germans established a mortar and command post just yards from his shallow hideout. Marcus steeled his nerves, deciding it was better to die than be captured. He stood and began walking slowly through the enemy's midst, deciding that if he moved slowly, he would not be suspected of being an enemy. It took all the nerve he could muster, but he strolled calmly to a nearby cactus patch, then down into a gully. Tom Morrison's tank crew remained far behind the main night action area for some time as the chaos ensued. Cobb's first platoon tank destroyers were withheld from firing for fear that they might accidentally hit retreating portions of their own second heavy platoon falling back. Cobb's platoon finally fell back to the village of West Latia to join a British anti-aircraft unit, forming a semicircle that faced the valley. Morrison felt his battalion was defensively positioned well enough to make a solid last stand. But his excitement turned to dismay when 24-year-old Lieutenant Frederick Colhoun Minor from Seaford, Delaware, led the remnants of his A Company of the 601st to their defensive position. Minor was livid, cursing out his fellow tankers for deserting his company while under fire. At least 14 men of the 601st had been taken prisoner of war. Others, like Lieutenants Marcus and Stotts, remained unaccounted for in the din of battle. Minor's A Company tankers were as furious as he was, believing they had been deserted under fire. Around 0100 on January 21st, Minor ordered Cobb's tanks to roll forward to support a group of French legionnaires who were trying to pull out under fire. Morrison's group pulled up at a crossroads and began firing on German tanks as they crested a hill. It was impossible to ascertain hits in the darkness. The German tanks, firing from the crest of the hill, lobbed their shells over the American M3s but the enemy gunners quickly compensated, and explosions began erupting in front of Morrison's tanks. One round of armor-piercing shells landed so close that its explosion lifted the front of Morrison's half-track. That's close enough, said Sergeant Hammond, who turned his half-track around and pulled back. The firing of the American tanks allowed the French foot soldiers to slip away from the German advance. One M3, commanded by Sergeant Michael Dragon, refused to start when the order was passed to fall back, so his crew set off an incendiary grenade in one of the gas tanks and hiked out. The German tanks refused to follow the Americans in their retreat, so the 601st passed the remainder of the night in the area. By daybreak, a heavy fog had set in. Morrison's tanks followed a platoon of medium tanks from the 1st Armored Division that was trying to make contact with the Germans. Enemy fire soon disabled two of the medium tanks, and the other two crews opted to fall back. The survivors who retreated back on foot through the lightly armored M3 platoon were disgusted. One of Morrison's platoon leaders tried to offer them assistance. Hey, you guys want to come aboard and ride with us? He called. The hell with you, one tanker yelled. You paper-armored bastards. All you're good for is to draw fire. After daybreak, there were few German targets for the Americans to fire on. Morrison's tank crew resorted to blasting anything that looked like it might hide a gun. Dick Hammond spotted something moving in the distance and told his gunner, level on that Arab house out there. Morrison's crew aimed and fired, hitting the corner of the house, where a German gun crew was taking refuge. The concussion killed all four gunners, although Morrison was unaware of that fact until his platoon moved forward two days later. The first serious combat action against German panzers from Morrison's half-track crew had ended in failure. The multi-day action had cost the 601st five men killed or missing, and 19 men taken prisoner of war. Four members of the tank destroyer battalion left behind on foot remained alive by the morning of January 22nd, but their ordeals in evading the German army had been harrowing. Lieutenant Bill Stotts and Sergeant Dan Doney had remained hidden behind a bush in a ravine until daybreak on January 21st. Throughout the night, they could see German sentries with machine guns. Fortunately, the Germans withdrew from the area around 1000 that morning, and Stotts and Doney began a long trek across the plain. That afternoon, they met with a battalion of French Foreign Legion soldiers and felt some relief after receiving candy, water, and crackers. 
that feeling was short-lived, as German forces opened fire the next morning and pinned down the French with mortars and machine-gun fire. A small ravine offered the only possibility of escape. Stotts and Doney were advised by the French they could make a break or stay and surrender. They opted to flee by sticking to the riverbed to escape the firefight. They were aided en route by indigenous mountain soldiers of the Moroccan Goumier, referred to as Gooms by the Allies, auxiliary units attached to the French Army of Africa. The Moroccan Gooms helped the two stranded Americans slip past the nearby German supply road into the nearby mountains. Stotts and Doney endured an agonizing climb through the mountains with their Goom guides. The next day they reached a French headquarters post, where they were overjoyed to join two other men from their unit who had escaped. It was Marcus, in company with Captain Benjamin Apthorpe Gould Fuller from Milton, Massachusetts, who had each endured their own hardships in evading German troops for two days. Marcus had survived in the desert without water and with only four lumps of sugar and two small pieces of candy that happened to be in his pockets. When the quartet was escorted back to their tank destroyer battalion, Marcus learned from a comrade that they had been written off as killed in action. They told me they were already about to divide up my baggage, but I got there in time to save my cigarettes, Marcus later recalled. The action with the German panzers in the West Latia Valley had been a rude introduction to the Desert Fox's forces. Some had perished, others had been captured, and four had narrowly escaped capture. It left tankers like Tom Morrison, Ben Fuller, Bill Harper, and Lowry Marcus yearning for vengeance. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.